Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions, with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach. So hello and welcome to week six in our series on unity and world religions on the World Spirituality Show. I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. And joining me today are two professors from Texas Christian University, Dr. Mark Dennis and Dr. Andy Fort. They've been guests on my show many times before, so it's a joy to welcome them back. Mark is a professor of East Asian religions. And Andy is Professor Emeritus and still active, actually, in university life. Both are keenly involved in the contemplative studies movement and active meditators as well as academics. So it's, a, like I said, a joy and a pleasure to welcome Mark and Andy to today's show on Buddhism. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. It's good to be back. Well, you know, we've been discussing um, the way in which uh, the various religions fit in uh, you know, the commonalities and some of the variations between um, a particular religion and the unity way of looking at things. And so uh, here we are on, on Buddhism. So thank you for bringing your expertise on that. Um, we've been looking at uh, the basic five principles of unity, the, the core truth principles, and, and seeing if there's correlation between those and, uh, you know, the systems we're looking at, in this case, Buddhism. And so let me sketch out real very quickly the five principles and we can go from there and we don't have to limit it to the five principles there's many other teachings of course but uh, that gives us a, a sort of a core idea so the first principle is there's one presence and one power in the universe that's god the good so it's the unitive idea there's one presence um the second spins off from that is if there's only one presence then we are part of that so we are inherently good we're inherently divine as human beings and we could extend that probably to to all sentient beings um the third principle is the what we call the law of mind action the, the formative power of the mind um the idea of karma i guess to, to a degree um cause and effect uh the fourth principle is affirmative prayer and then the fifth is none of these work unless you're willing to put them into practice uh, in your life and uh, to to live from those those core the principles and understanding that comes from them so there there you have it and the first thing we could say is there there is no god as such in buddhism is there so um you know we're dealing with a system that doesn't necessarily spend a lot of time uh, analyzing the nature of god though it's it's kind of has a negative way of approaching the divine in the sense that you know it, it talks about uh, the ultimate being 
emptiness, right? The, the sort of the, the the void, which is paradoxically full of possibility. So, is that could that be substituted for an idea of God, perhaps? Jump and in. Why? Where did you start? <laughs> We'll start somewhere because, you know, dead time is a horrible time on radio. <laughs> that, was, that was the void we were giving you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there we go then. So we are experiencing the void, folks, firsthand. See how smart these professors are. I thought we'd made a mistake, but no, it was all planned. Yes, very good. Well, well then I'll start and, and learn. So one of the things about talking about an entire religious tradition is real hard to make a generality, particularly in Buddhism, because the irony is that while if you talk about what the Buddha and some of the most interesting philosophers talked about, you were dead on about not being a god. But as happens in a variety of religious traditions, the Buddha, who certainly said he wasn't a god, into a divine being, and there's a whole wide pantheon of deities, uh, of past, present, and future. So it's, it's really hard to... There isn't a god when millions and millions of Buddhists have worshipped not just one, but a variety of deities. Right, Mark? and that... that... That's particularly true in, in Tibetan Buddhism, isn't it, where you have this pantheon of uh, various deities that we're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and I would add, East Paul, Asia too. I, I, yeah, I would say in East Asia, too. And so just to elaborate on what Andy was saying, you see, I mean, I, I, I would first echo, there's such wide variation in any religion, but this is, you know, particularly so in, in Buddhism or Tibetan forms of Buddhism are very different from Japanese and so on, but even within uh, Tibetan or Japanese Buddhism, there's a lot of variation. And so, for example, you see um, uh, Avalokiteshvara, uh, uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion, taking on both male and female forms in different countries. And then uh, the Pure Land forms of Buddhism, they're quite popular uh, or were in China and, and uh, even today in Japan, um, has, um, you know, the Amitabha Buddha. Um, and so that's very different than Zen Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism. So it's just a huge variation. And so in terms of, to go back to your question, it's very, it's, you know, in kind of typical academic style, it's difficult to, uh, to answer that question directly because it depends on the different uh, traditions. One thing we do know is that, you know, in its pure form, say, if you go back to primitive Buddhism, you know, the Buddhism, the Buddhism of the, the first turning of the wheel, if you like, you know, what the Buddha has purportedly said, you know, it's, it's really not concerned with gods, is it, or with, with pantheons. You know, the Buddha was very pragmatic. He wanted to wake people up to what's really going on here, you know, with, without, without a lot of conceptualization. And maybe that conceptualization was added later, you know, as, as the second and third turnings of the wheel, as they call it, you know, into various aspects of, uh, of what we call Buddhism today. So, um, he, you know, he, he was a bit like Jesus, you know, he didn't want to really create anything. 
Uh, he wanted to strip it down to the essentials, it seems to me, you know, and I see a lot of correlation between Jesus, the, the, the primitive Jesus, you know, the essential Jesus and, and the Buddha, you know, uh, were both masters of, um, you know, sort of aphorism and uh, conundrum, if you like, paradox, and a big emphasis on, you know, the, the importance of, of love, right, and, and I'm, I'm looking clearly at ourselves, right? The, the Buddhism seems to me to be very profound spiritual psychology, you know, and, and that's that's interesting to me. That um, it's probably the most sophisticated psychology of any religion that I can think of, anyway. Yeah, and Paul, just to elaborate on that, so uh, as you mentioned, like to... go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Andy. Go ahead, Mark. <laughs> okay, well, I was. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah, it's I'm I'm having a little trouble hearing Andy, so maybe I'm talking over him, and I apologize for that. That's all right. No, I can just... hear you. I yeah, I can hear you fine, Paul. Uh, but I was just going to say that, as you mentioned, uh, Buddhism develops over time, like any religion, and there are these so-called turnings of the wheel of Dharma, and um, this uh, this deconstruction deconstruction is a very common kind of philosophical move in Buddhism, where this is the idea of looking at, at all phenomenal existence, whether it's a, you know, a physical object like a chariot or an idea like democracy or the self that we construe to be substantial and enduring and kind of taking these uh, things apart. And so this is a, a crucial element of, of Buddhist thought. And Andy and I are just finishing teaching a course which is uh, um, uh, on mindfulness. And we just, um, maybe two or four weeks ago, we had our students do an exercise that highlights this, how it, it focuses on our notions of the self by looking at this word I, the letter I, the I that we, we say constantly in our, our daily lives. And we asked, we, we gave background on how Buddhism and Hindu uh, philosophies looked at this notion of self through the lens of the eye, and I think that's valuable here because um, we have to. You were giving the uh, comparison of Jesus and Buddha, and it's important in the context of Buddhism to understand the Buddha, uh, you know, coming out of a particular religious and philosophical context where he's responding to, um, you know, notions of the self and liberation. Uh, that come out of Hindu schools of of thought, and maybe Andy now has some uh, things to add to that. Well, I was going to add making the distinction between a kind of focus on doctrine and a focus on ethics, because what you find in religious traditions often when you drill down on the doctrines, they begin to seem pretty different. Like Jesus definitely believed in a God, Abba, and the Buddha certainly had reservations about that and talked about karma and rebirth in ways that we don't have a record, Jesus talking about it. But if you uh, look into the ethics of, uh, you know, not like you uh, wish to be treated and uh, kind of a standard ethical behavior across cultures, there's a lot of similarity there. 
Right. Yeah. Very much so. And you know, this idea that we're all into everything's interconnected. You know, the de dependent origination or whatever, which is quite a big system. We can't get into all the details of that, but everything is related to everything else. You know, and and you, you it's difficult to separate it out. Uh, there, there is no separation. Everything is part of the flow. Is, is sort of a Buddhist idea, isn't it? And and so therefore. Um, you know, looking at the eye, is there really an eye? You know, let's trace it back to, you know, how how did that arise? What 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 are the elements of it? And and you know, the Buddha talked about the the aspects of the aggregates of, of our personality and our being. You know, um, and tracing it back down to to emptiness, to this spaciousness, this boundlessness, um, which to me is very beautiful because it's the idea that you know you're into that place beyond thinking beyond um, trying to fix anything, simply allowing the, the magnificence to, to be present. And I know the Theravada tradition, which is sort of the elder tradition, closer to the, you know, the beginning of, of the Buddha's um, life, uh, it doesn't emphasize Buddha nature so much, the sort of Mahayana, the, the second turning of the wheel that, that sort of emphasizes that but but it, there is this concept isn't there that there is what the buddha did i can do too right that i can i can awaken to my my essential nature uh, as well so that that would fit into what we talk about in unity having the christ within us as well it's not just in jesus yeah i would say paul that um in east asian traditions in particular the notion of the idea of Buddha nature, that is the potential for attaining enlightenment Buddhahood is, is, um, uh, exists in all sentient life or sentient beings, uh, is, is quite a powerful idea. And then, but it's an idea that becomes controversial. Um, some, uh, some traditions reject that and say that's, um, kind of a way to dismiss an idea within Buddhist philosophy is to argue that it's an essentialist idea. That is, it's positing some kind of enduring, unchanging core to existence. Uh, but it becomes really quite popular um, in, in East Asian forms of Buddhism. You see it in China, uh, in the Korean Peninsula, and, and in Japan. Although in Tibetan traditions, there's, um, there was a school that uh, professed this, the Jonantas, uh, and they were criticized for this, and um, uh, so it's it's an idea that's um, that's really quite interesting in the development of Buddhism, but it's not universal. Right, that's good to know. That's interesting. But you know, I think the the argument there is not, not to be pinned down. Right, we we don't want to create something that be, then becomes uh, an edifice uh, or an icon in and of itself. Right, there's that sense of always returning to. The, the unknown or the spontaneous seems to be a big part of um, certain parts in Buddhism, you know, especially like thinking Zen Buddhism, you know, which the, the emphasis is, is not to have a whole lot of baggage, right, but to, to release it. They say that, you know, um, the Zen is a, is a path beyond the scriptures, and, and yet I think there's more Zen texts than any, than any other Buddhist uh, path. So there's this inbuilt irony there, isn't there? You know, you, you have to study a lot in order to, to release study, right? I, I think the Sufis said that too, you know. Uh, what, what we seek can't be found by seeking, but only seekers find it. Um, you know, there's, there's a kind of conundrum there. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of I I I have an interest in Zen. I had gone to you know practice at Zen temples while living in Japan, and 
and and scholars who are Zen scholars point out this uh, this irony that you just touched upon beyond words and scriptures, but there sure are a lot of words and scriptures. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on to um, the, the law of mind action, you know, which we talk about a lot in unity because it sort of comes out of the, the whole tradition of uh, mental healing, new thought, um, transcendentalism, you know, the power of the mind, the creative power of the mind um, influenced uh, unity a lot. And, and you could sum it up, thoughts held in mind produce after their kind and not necessarily just thoughts. You know, it's not just cerebral, mm -hmm. it's thoughts and feelings, the, whatever is your deep motivation is what you're going to see uh, coming forth in, into activity, right? Um, is, is that an idea? I know they, they talk a lot about karma and, and where your consciousness is in Buddhism. So how, how does that all fit together? Andy, did you want to um, start? I, I, um, little Johnny one note here about how complex that is. I, I think in a certain way that... Uh, all religious traditions talk to some degree about you reap what you sow, that, uh, you know, the, the karma effect. But again, when you drill down, there's more. Or to some degree, again, how we create our own reality. And that's a fine dance. That yeah, optimistic if they're willing to. I'm sorry? Now you're going in and out a little bit, say, so I'm trying, keep going. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, and I was going to say some people have a really positive attitude, go for it, and they will create a more positive reality than people who are really negative. You don't have to be too mystical about that. Right, exactly. Um, I think the danger is where, you know, you do one thing hoping that everything's going to work out perfectly, uh, you know, as a result. Um, you know, if I'm holding thoughts of prosperity, you know, I better have a million dollars by the end of the week or whatever. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily work like that. It's a little more complicated, isn't it, than just uh, holding the right thought. And I, I, th I think a lot of people are dissatisfied with the law of mind action because they apply it in, you know, simplistically or having an expectation that some it's magical thinking or whatever. And, and th these are forces that are a little more subtle than that, I think. And, um, though I think you're right, you know, if you, if you generally are an optimist, optimistic, things tend to work out, you know, uh, but then if you, it's important to be pessimistic sometimes, uh, you know, if it's a healthy pessimism, you know, it's skeptical, I guess you could say, not not everybody's fool. So, again, Jesus said that, that he says, be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. One of my favorite quotations from Jesus is, is marrying the two parts together. You know, not, nobody's fool, but then not cynical either, still hopeful and joyous. Uh, embracing those two is is sort of like the middle way, if you like, which is uh, the path of the Buddha, right? Be beyond extremes of um, asceticism on the one hand or indulgence on the other, you know, the middle course of uh, sort of a balanced uh, way across the race's edge. Yeah, Paul, I would, I, would, I would agree with that. I mean, Buddhism often describes itself as, you know, the middle path, moderating these extremes. You see that in the Buddha's story. And to go back what to, back to what Andy was saying in response to your question uh, about mind action is um, uh, Buddhism often uh, you know you would you would mention these aggregates the uh, 
kind of five elements that uh, Buddhist philosophers will kind of look at a person and say, you know, there's these different elements, there's a physical body, but then there's consciousness is one of these. And so the transformation of consciousness is a crucial element of of the Buddhist path. And that's where you see uh, mindfulness and meditation coming in, which have become really important in um, American forms of Buddhism. But then, as you probably remember from the kind of the, you know, to go back to what you'd said about the first turning of the wheel of Dharma, the teaching was, you know, these, these four noble truths and the last of the four um, truths was this eightfold path, which includes these mental practices of mental cultivation, but also, you know, kind of right action. And I think those, that, those are some areas where you can kind of tie the Buddhist path into what you were saying about the unity principles of mind action. Right. Yeah, I'd be interested if it isn't racing ahead to when you mentioned prayer, we could say meditation. Like, how do you uh, connect or split prayer and meditation? You mean in unity? Yeah. In the unity tradition? Yeah. Um, you know, I think they, they uh, you know, can, can be sort of melded together to a degree, you know, especially unity's form of prayer is a little more meditative than uh, more traditional prayers of beseeching or whatever, or supplication, because we, we did make a distinction between begging God and aligning with God. You know, if we're, if we're one with God, essentially, then we don't need to be begging because that that's, speaks a sense of separation. And so we, we prefer to align with and, and affirmation, affirmative prayer seems to work better in that regard. But then, you know, having aligned oneself, then you spend more time with God in the silence or in, in a in mindful place, you know, which would be meditation. So I think uh, prayer and meditation sort of go together quite well in, in unity. We don't make a huge distinction bet- between the two. And, and we don't do a lot of rote prayers. You know, I think that's another aspect of um, unity is the tradition of spontaneous prayer. Um, mm. Which which could be You're, very powerful. Um, are we all still together? I'm hearing strange noises. Yep, I'm I'm oh. here. I'm here. Yeah, we're all here. Good. All right. Very good. So how does that so fit in with the, the, the Buddhist tradition? Yeah, I was thinking of a kind of receptivity prayer uh, rather than a. Oh you know, more proactive, actually being still and listening kind of prayer. Yes. Meditation. Yes, very, very good. And, and, you know, that fits in very well with, um, you know, where we're headed in unity. Um, But beyond beyond this idea of, um, you know, sometimes people say prayer is talking to God and and then meditation is shutting up and listening, you know. Um, but, you know, if God knows, as Jesus said, if God knows everything you are, have already thought, and you know, and uh, Jesus knew that, you know, God was intimate with everyone, then you don't really need to be telling God stuff, you know. It's, it's, it's more eff- efficacious to just be quiet and listen uh, because, you know, it's my understanding and my experience actually in life that um, the un- universe will uh, teach us everything, right? What was it, the famous quote by Franz Kafka, if we could just be quiet, 
the universe will, you know, dance uh, at our feet or whatever. I can't remember the exact quote. Dance in ecstasy at our feet. And I love that idea, you know, that if we're, if we're mindful or open and receptive, if we look clearly, then we, we get yeah. every, every single bit of guidance we can ever need, right? Yeah, Paul. That, Mark, do you want to? Yeah, that that makes sense to to me, Paul. What you just said, and um, I would just add to what Andy was uh, saying about uh, with prayer. I mean, within Buddhism, you see a lot of different kinds of practices coming out of meditation. So we we're talking a little bit about Zen. You also see, you know, um, kind of visualizations, but then you also have. Um, for example, I mentioned before the Pure Land tradition, the uh, the recitation or the remembrance of the name of the Amitabha Buddha, who uh, rules over the the Pure Land, um, and so that's not uh, a prayer in uh, I think in the same context as we were discussing. But I think those examples show you the kind of range of um, you know, practices within uh, Buddhism that are tied in some ways to uh, what we were talking about in the, in the last, uh, print, with the last principle, kind of mind and, and action. And it's also true in Buddhism. Um, you see this in Japan, for example, a number of scholars have written about this, where there's a kind of um, engaging in various kinds of practices that are meant to bring about um, you know, kind of worldly benefits, whether that's, you know, finding a spouse or uh, doing well on an entry, entrance exam or, or things like that. So within the context of Buddhism, there's a lot of kinds of practices that would be related to what you're asking about. Yeah, I remember when I first read Burmese Days by George Orwell back when, in my university era, and uh, it talked about Buddhists, you know, accumulating merit. And I knew a little bit about Buddhism. I thought it was all about awakening. And then this idea of accumulating merit, <laughs> yeah. you know, by doing good things. I thought, what's yep. that about? That seems a little bit uh, not quite as, as airy and beautiful as I had imagined Buddhists mm -hmm. to be. But, but a lot of it is about accumulating merit, isn't it? Doing the right thing. So very similar in some ways it to, you know, the Catholic tradition, you know, of... Um, you know, being seen to do the right thing, at least uh, historically that's been the case. I don't want to uh, besmirch uh, Catholicism, but, the, but there has been that, that tradition. We go into the break. It's time for a joke. Well, I think um, to be... Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I think it's fair to say, as a scholar has, that everybody's doing get-what-you-want Buddhism. The question yeah. is, do you just want a benefit or do you want nirvana? Right, there we go. And on that note, let's take a break. Cogitate that, folks, while you listen to these messages from Unity. Do you want stuff or do you want to be free? And we'll come back in a few minutes to talk with Mark and Andy. Join us then. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. All right, welcome back to today's show on World Spirituality. Uh, this is week six in our series, Unity and World Religions, and we're looking at Buddhism today. And we have Professors Andy Fort and Mark Dennis here with me. We've been looking at the nature of God or non-God in, in Buddhism, the, uh, the extreme variety of Buddhist traditions, hard to pin things down. Um, the, the, the fact there is Buddha nature, or maybe there isn't, um, and the, the idea that, yes, there's a connectedness to everything, which would fit well with uh, what we talk about in Unity is the law of mind action. Um, the thing I like about Buddhism, which I also like about the early teachings of Jesus, when I say early, before it was uh, encrusted with other ideas, even the gospel writers sort of twisted some of Jesus' ideas um, and teaching. Uh, but the, this, the primitive idea is that you, you, you just release, let go, um, stop uh, accumulating things, um, not just physical things, but ideas around something and have a direct experience. I remember, here's the joke. Jack Cornfield said um, about the, the, the various forms of, of um, Buddhism, which is sometimes called vehicles, the, the Hinayana and the Mahayana tradition, the, the little and the great vehicle. And he said, little vehicle or big vehicle, all vehicles will be towed away at owner's expense. And I've always, <laughs> I've always liked that one because ultimately, you know, all these <laughs> concepts good. we have around something will ultimately be, be towed away. And I, I want to read this short statement from uh, Rigzin Yingmei Lingpa, uh, who is, I believe, an 18th century uh, Tibetan master, and, and get your feedback on this because it's one of my favorite uh, statements. I often read it pretty much once a day. Um, and it says this, the pith essence of the great perfection is to dwell in the natural radiance of all that occurs, at one with actions, energies, and thoughts, and beyond all contrived boundaries of view and meditation, at ease in the naked clarity of the present moment. To me, that sums everything up in, the, in a short statement. Um, I love it. What do you think? <laughs> That's yeah, well, I'm like that all the time. What's that? <laughs> oh, you're there I'm all like the time. I'm like that all the time. You're, you're in the naked clarity <laughs> of the present moment. I knew you were, Andy. Yeah, no, that's right. Right. Uh, that is a goal devoutly to be wished. <laughs> yeah. Yeah that's, well, very, the, yeah, that's a very nice quote, Paul. Um, yeah, the great perfection. Uh, yeah. Yeah, which is one of the. I, I wanted to say that because um, when I hear myself as a, you know, kind of as an academic saying, well, there's all these different aspects of Buddhism or Christianity or Hinduism or whatever, that um, I think, you know, to be rigorous, that's absolutely true. One of the things, uh, there's lots of things I like about the Dalai Lama, but one is that he says, all traditions have enormous resources. And he says for himself, he said, don't come over to Buddhism unless you really can't find what you want in your own tradition. And he thinks you can if you look. And so that's the cup more than half full about religious traditions. This is a vast array of resources and ways to look for the ultimate. Right. 
And, you know, that speaks to the generous-hearted nature of the Buddhist tradition, right? This this idea that um, they're not trying to proselytize. Um, some religions proselytize a lot more than others, but Buddhism doesn't seem to be the one that, uh, you know, forces people to, to become Buddhist, right? And, and they're going to kill you if you don't. Um, that doesn't seem to be part of the tradition, luckily. Fortunately, it's nice to have a religion that doesn't I'll do that. I'll let Mark address that. Mark, Mark has studied that. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, so one of the interesting things, uh, Paul, is both Andy and I have taught world religions. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, one of the core requirements of TCU. And I, I, um, I include a, um, a section asking students kind of for their uh, views about Islam and Buddhism and a lot of students, you know, kind of repeat the negative discourse about Islam and, you know, it's terrorism and jihadis and things like that. And then a lot of students um, think of Buddhism, you know, as kind of the peaceful meditating monk. And I say, you know, I've, I've been studying Buddhism for a long time and I know a lot of Buddhists and, and that image is true. However, there's also a, a long history of, of Buddhist violence and, uh, and I, I actually teach an upper-level course called Religion and Violence, and uh, we cover a number of case studies uh, that uh, detail kind of the, the violent history of Buddhism, and that can be in uh, Sri Lanka, in Burma today. Uh, Japanese Buddhists have, um, you know, the Zen Buddhists, uh, the group that I am familiar with, they were complicit in um, kind of creating the ideological justification for the violence against the Koreans and and uh, the Chinese. So, you know, as, as Andy was saying before, as in all, you know, it's always, there's, there's a lot of complexity to these uh, traditions. Um, and so you do have, you know, you have a history of violence in, in Buddhism, but then you have a vast majority of Buddhists who are just, as you described, Paul, um, you know, peaceful and compassionate and happy. And, you know, that's, that's, that's been my experience with them. I was in Sri Lanka once, and um, we were. Uh, my wife and I had a, a young child with us, and so we were sitting up front in the taxi, which was in the area reserved for the the clergy, and um, clergy meaning the the Buddhist monks. And of course, in Sri Lanka, as in some Buddhist traditions, the you know a monk doesn't become a monk forever. You you, you take it on for a few years and and do your stint sort of thing, a bit like service in the army. And, and so maybe they're not the most spiritual of people. I don't know. But this monk was really offended the fact we were taking up his space, and he he, sh he shoved me really hard. And it was a very oh. unpleasant. It was a very unpleasant situation. So I've personally experienced a little bit of Buddhist violence. <laughs> 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 Again, I had this idea they were going to be, you know, uh, doing the namaste, and you know, well, everything is beautiful and all that. But this this was not quite <laughs> quite like that. Yeah. Luckily, I, I took it with a pinch no. of salt. You know, I can understand he he felt like, why are we there? You know, whatever. What are we doing? Um, but it was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. No, human beings. It's a continuum. Yeah, we're yeah, human, human beings, beings, so it, we're going to find that everywhere, everywhere we go. And um, indeed, yeah. indeed. So let's talk about, um, we mentioned prayer and meditation, and, and in unity, at Silent Unity, we, we have our own uh, yeah, uh, 
a mindfulness and prayer technician that uh, that works there and so we've taken on board that that word mindfulness as have many right it's it's become common parlance now in 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 medical circles you know have a lot of people working uh, in in mindfulness studies and practices i know i know you're involved both involved in that you know through the contemplative study programs um, and the, the, this correlation between healthy mindedness right and um, and what's manifesting in our in our life experience so again part law of mind action again um, do you think that mindfulness has become uh, is you know, heading towards uh, meaninglessness because it's, it's so overused now it's a bit like yoga you know it covers covers so much ground but what does it really really say I'm kind of ambivalent in that on the one hand, yes, especially kind of in America, the way it's been adapted, it's really been commodified. And so there's mindful this and that. And uh, and like Paul, you said with yoga. On the other hand, a more generous way to put it is that I think most everybody's doing the best they can with what they have available. And they aren't going to go for nirvana or they're not really going to do this very rigorous monastic mindfulness. And so they're reaching out for uh, a little help. And I think mindfulness can and does supply that. And it opens marks in my experience is that for a certain proportion, smaller than we'd like, a certain proportion, it opens a door. It wasn't there. And so we currently, right now, are finishing up a course in which the majority of students are business students. And they are uh, they're very clear about the stress that they're under and the anxiety it causes and so on. So we are giving them, we like to believe, and they certainly believe it, uh, a toolkit. This. Now, are they truly deeply mindful beings in the Buddhist sense? Nope. But are they reaching for something that hopefully will bring them a bit peace and alleviate some of their suffering? Yes. Right. And therefore, it's useful, isn't it? I was uh, yeah. tuning uh, in. To... Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add real quick that uh, so a a Andy and I talk with our students a lot about this issue that you raised, and I think it's a very important one, and it's uh, debated sometimes quite vociferously uh, in, in Buddhist circles. But I wanted to mention that uh, Andy and I have both, uh, or we've co-written two articles that are coming out this spring that address this topic in different ways. And in one of those, which is going to appear in what's called the Athenaeum Review, uh, we talk about this uh, to, to some extent, that there's been this kind of um, movement of towards people who are not trained in Buddhist tradition, somebody like you know Thich Nhat Hanh, and then just uh, saying that they teach mindfulness in all areas of life. And one of the one of the examples that we cite in our article is uh, TCU's cafeteria had a contest for the mindful taco, and people could vote on what was. What recipe was the most mindful taco? And so this is, it's not hard to see that, that some Buddhists would see this as being kind of offensive. And it's, there, uh, it's, as you said, Paul, it's gone into all kind of walks of life. 
But one of the things that Andy and I have done is we assign a book that's actually very good. It's a little old now, but it's called Mindful America by Jeff Wilson. And it historicizes, kind of gives the history and major developments of this movement of mindfulness to become kind of a commodity, a way for some people at least to make money. And Andy has talked about this a lot, that this is this uh, mimics in some ways uh, the commodification of, of, of yoga. And um, so it's an, a really interesting kind of um, social and religious development within the assimilation of Buddhism within in the United States. And one of the kind of key uh, ways of viewing this issue is through something that's common in Buddhism, which is called skillful means. Skillful means simply means if it's if it's a technique that is not ultimately true but is helping to reduce suffering, then in, in it's good in that sense. And so this ties in uh, to what Andy was saying about our class that you know our students are uh, our class is called uh, mindfulness in modern life. Our students are benefiting because they're under extreme stress and they have a lot of anxiety and other kinds of negative mental states. And it's very clear that what uh, these techniques are helping them. However, uh, this is this is not the context in which these uh, practices emerged. And so it's important to keep that in mind when trying to understand mindfulness in, in America today. Right. And it's quite a deep practice, isn't it? If you're talking about Vipassana or whatever, you know, insight into the various levels of our consciousness and, you know, it could even get you, you know, to enlightenment supposedly right if you follow the various uh, techniques that are that are laid out over the centuries and so it's, it's it can be quite a profound um practice just like mm -hmm. um, you know potentially uh patanjali's uh, yoga sutras you know also can be a, a guide to enlightenment but many people use them you know in other contexts so yeah it certainly beats being hateful to people and so in that case <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm all for it you know <laughs> Indeed, yeah. indeed. Yeah, no, well, well, yeah. Well, you know, there's a, one of the one of the go, yeah. I was going to say one of the good things about uh, what what we're going through right now is this show uh, is you know. Um, in, in May, uh, the COVID-19, um, you know, self-isolation is that we're getting to hear more and more uh, thing, uh, Zoom calls or um, mixes or whatever means things come to us. And I, I've been tuning in a lot to a community in Wales called the Community of the Many Names of God or, or Scanda Vale because it's, it's basically a Hindu community, but it's open to Buddhism and Christianity as well. But uh, the, the various pujas that they have, you know, being put up on video or, or in audio. And so it's been wonderful to listen to that. But uh, one of the little talks they gave was um, the teacher there used to tell them, be where you are. And uh, in other words, you sanctify the moment, right? So whatever you're doing, if, you, if you're there with it, instead of distracted and doing something else in your mind while you're doing the actual activity, if you can be with the activity, be mindfully aware of the, your presence there, um, things become very beautiful, right? And so it's not that we have to do anything particularly wonderful, special or different um, or even rigorous. It's just noticing what we're doing 
and we notice that, that becomes a graceful thing and it uh, it's because that's a very zen way of approach too isn't it but I, I love it because it's it's bringing us to here and now right rather than or conceptualizing about you know how should i do it where am i what's going on um too much in our heads and the west westerners in general we tend to be too much in our heads so to be present to what is, to be where you are, can be quite solitary, I think. Yeah, and I, I, I yeah. think, Paul, that's very true. Uh, go ahead, Andy. No, you, you finish. Yeah, and then I'll... Okay. Well, I was just going to say that, uh, uh, Paul, Andy, and I talk about this a lot uh, with our students, that we, li we really live in our heads. And uh, to connect to the body... Um, so one of the mindfulness exercises we have students do is uh, by uh, Joseph Goldstein. He does a mindfulness of the body. But also Andy has taught a class with a dance professor. Um, and uh, we do like mindful walking and other kinds of things that are meant to get students to connect to the body, connect to nature. Um, because, as, as you said, we really do live in our heads. Right. Very good. Which sort of brings mm -hmm. us to the fifth, the fifth principle. Let's talk some more about this, uh, which is the idea of putting it into action, right? And um, this mindfulness we're talking about is very much putting it into action. If we, if we can help some business people become more mindful, you know, they can take that into the, the, the whole of life. Um, and it can be the trickle down effect can be quite profound there. Um, so, you know, the, the, the Buddha emphasized putting it into practice, right? It's no good just conceptualizing. In fact, he was against conceptualizing and, and coming up with points that were, you know, uh, philosophical but not really practical, right? He, he, he was uh, not in favor of that, just as Jesus very similarly, you know, was not in favor of all the, um, the following all the rules that the Pharisees did. He wanted to cut to the chase. So, um Practice is immensely important, right? And and being loving, uh, lovingly kind to others. Yeah. Well, Paul, you were sort of suggesting you were changing the topic uh, to getting into practice. But what you were talking about, or we were talking about before then, is just being present. You know, that sounds like not much, but that's a huge, huge thing. Yes. And, uh, there's you know, the kind of perfect being present, like the quote you read, which I think the three of us are far from, but um, there's like that little bit more. And there's this deep trust, I think, in Buddhism and many other traditions that even though you're not really doing it to be a more ethical human being, you're just doing it to be present. There's something about that makes you feel more connected to your better nature and to other beings. It's what Thich Nhat Hanh calls inner being. And so when you think of a practice, sometimes people think of 10, 20, or whatever minutes sitting in lotus position, but trying to be present to other people, well, and yourself, that's really an achievement, and it needs a lot of work. Uh, Andy mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh, and we read uh, uh, his book, uh, Being Peace, in, in class. And so he's, you know, clearly known as someone who promotes mindfulness. But he's also the founder of what uh, we call socially engaged Buddhism. And uh, the kind of key phrase in socially engaged Buddhism is not turning away 
uh, not turning away, meaning not turning away from the suffering that is ubiquitous in our world. And so it's incumbent upon us to engage in action, as you're talking about, to alleviate that suffering. And, you know, that can manifest in, in many different ways. I, I imagine Andy has talked to you uh, on previous uh, episodes about his involvement in the food bank, um, you know, which is uh, especially uh, needed right now because of the, of the coronavirus. But uh, it can manifest in, in many different kinds of ways. And so that um, notion of what Andy said was interbeing, this, this idea of we are all connected in some way, which kind of harkens back to one of your earlier points uh, when we were first starting out this conversation. That's a really important uh, part of uh, the practice, I think, uh, uh, for, for Buddhism. And of course, in the, the Mahayana tradition, right, there's this bodhisattva vow, you know, where you, you're approaching enlightenment, you're approaching freedom or, or extinction, you know, this idea of uh, releasing your old sense of self, but you turn back, you know, in order to help others. And um, it's a very noble thing. And again, I can see Jesus doing that. You know, he, he was a, a bodhisattva in that sense, you know, was was totally free and yet decided to hang around to to help others. And, and even mystically said, you know, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's that sort of the, the, the cosmic presence of, of that, that bodhisattva idea is is there. And, and we're all encouraged to be that. And we might say, well, that's a heavy and a hard task, right? But the essence of us is is exactly that. And Andy, you talked earlier about, um, you know, it takes effort. There's, there's two paths out there in Buddhism. You know, there's the sort of the step-by-step -step method of slowly progressing. And, and then there's this... Um, instant enlightenment, uh, you know, which you see in, in advanced forms of Tibetan Buddhism and in some forms of Zen Buddhism, the fact that, you know, abandon the search, you're already here, right? You, you, you're looking for water, but you, you're a fish swimming in it. And, and so uh, to think, well, how can I find the water? How can I find it when you're in it is sort of a, a, a crazy notion, right? So, so it, again, resting in those two, you know, that it's already here and yet there's work to be done to to remember that fact it's it's uh it's tough it's interesting well I yeah i'd say paul that the prior point you were making about the bodhisattva is uh can you really be free if everyone around you isn't yes um and so this uh covid is really giving us a, a sort of a profound experience of this, but uh, put it another way, um, if you really love someone, and uh, whether it's romantic or family or, or whatever, and they're suffering, how can you not be suffering? Uh, and so it's in our self-interest to be selfless. Right. And the very word compassion means to feel with another, right? It's the, it's the idea of that connectedness, um, which makes us fully human, I believe. You know, if we can't feel for others, then we we, sort of, we, we have a problem. We have a, sort of a psychopathic or sociopathic personality, right? Which which is an illness, right? The the essence of us wants to connect to others. It's it's part of 
um, the beauty, I think, of being alive. And we, we see it in activity. You know, we see people who are willing to help uh, in the most difficult of situations. And, and that's the, the most noble part of, of our humanness, I think. It's, it's a beautiful part. Um, before we end, uh, I know you've made references to the work that you're doing. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? We have a website, Paul, um, the Contemplative Studies Group. It's contemplativefrogs, one word, contemplativefrogs.com. Um, my email uh, address is m.dennis at tcu.edu, and people can write to me, and I can put them on our mailing list, answer questions, etc. And Andy is a.fort at uh, tcu.edu, and, and we're, we're quite active. Uh, we're going to be teaching some mindfulness courses uh, this summer. Uh, our provost has asked us to um, do that to help our students um, deal with, you know, heightened stress and anxiety because of the virus. And Andy, did you want to add any anything? That was pretty good. I just wanted to say, for any listener that doesn't know, contemplative frogs may sound a little strange. TCU is the only uh, university in the country that whose mascot is the horned frogs. So we are the contemplative frog. There we go. There we go. And, of course, yeah. a lot of people are listening all over the world here, but they can still t find out more from the various websites there and uh, find out what's happening in your, your neck of the woods. Um, let me tell you about next week, and then we'll say goodbye. Um, next week, we explore Taoism. So that should be interesting, the great Chinese philosophy and practice of allowing uh, and sort of a non-resistant approach, uh, which which is quite fascinating. Um, so join us for that next week. Um, let's see, we got 30 seconds. Words of wisdom from you both to, to finish up the show. <laughs> Keep breathing deeply. Keep breathing deeply. That's good. That. All right, very good. So <laughs> keep breathing deeply. That's our advice. Yeah. That's the advice we're being given. It makes sense to me. Thank you so much, Andy, Mark, for being on the show today. Thanks for having us, Paul. And thanks for listening, folks. Talk to you next week. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.